Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Will COVID lead to a rebalancing of the British economy, or will normal service resume, albeit with yet a higher debt burden hanging over it? In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graeme Stewart, talks to the author of The Elephant in the Room, the entrepreneur John Mills, chairman of the consumer goods company JML and the Labour Party's largest individual donor, about how the UK's manufacturing base could be revived through policies designed to sustain a more competitive exchange rate. John Mills, uh, COVID obviously has had the most extraordinary effect on the British economy. It's dived 20% and then it's begun a recovery, only made back about half of that extraordinary, unprecedented loss. How is COVID reshaping the economy? Uh, Apart from obviously retail and um, hospitality, what do you see as the long-term effects coronavirus could well be having on the manufacturing sector, for example? Um, well, I think you need to separate out the short-term effects and long-term effects, as really you've suggested. Uh, I mean, in the short-term, obviously, there's a huge problem with uh, the government debt soaring up as a result of the uh, furlough arrangements and all that kind of thing. Uh, in terms of where we are in the longer term, um, my view is it's going to be quite a slow recovery from the uh, situation we're in because I think the way the government is going to try and structure this is by increasing domestic demand uh, and uh, not paying much attention to exports and the balance of payments and all these other things which I'm very concerned about. And then what's going to happen is that the economy is going to go on having huge deficits. It's going to be a shortage of overall demand. The economy is growing, going to grow very slowly. Uh, you know, the trend rate recently has been in GDP per head less than 1%. I think that's likely to continue or even get worse. And this produces my fear that we're going to finish up in 2030 with lower living standards than we've, we've uh, enjoyed in 2019 or even 2007. And the whole generation would have been wasted. So, I mean, I think there are huge structural problems that the UK economy's got, which will be made worse by COVID. Uh, and, but I don't think really the government's got a grip on that to try and counteract them in the way which I suggest we should do. So are you saying that your fear is that um, economic policy will return to a long-term normal except burdened with, with an ever greater debt? I think, that, I think that's true. Um, uh, and I think we've, we've been set back by whatever it is, probably 10% or something this year. So we've got a, a base to start off from, which is 90% of where we were before. And you know, I think it's going. To, I think there will be some recovery over the next year or two. But I think that by twenty three or twenty twenty four, we might be back to where we were in twenty nineteen. Uh, but then we'll be crawling up towards twenty thirty. And you need more. You need some growth in the economy to get average incomes to go up, because uh, the you know, the better off the, the people with sharper elbows tend to get a disproportionate amount of any increase there is. So if you get a loan increase per annum as, you know, three quarters of a percent or something, the effect is that due to no increase in living standards at all for most people. And that's what I fear is going to happen over the next few years. I think there's also additional problems, which is that we've got a number of rather special costs, some of which 
are the result of uh, COVID, some going to be there anyway. Uh, but we've got climate change coming down the track, probably going to cost us 3% or something of GDP. Uh, we've got to make good the shortfall in education and training. We've clearly got health costs going up quite sharply. Uh, we've got social care and pensions and a you know, bigger number of people dependent on the working population. And you add all that lot up, it's something like 8% of disposable incomes which you can offset if you've got uh, the economy growing. If the economy is just static or growing very, very slowly, then there's not enough to take up that slack. And that seems to be another really major problem we've got running up over the next few years. In your new book published by Civitas uh, called The Elephant in the Room, you set out a long historical perspective uh, on which to build your arguments for what to do next. And it's a perspective really where you, you've challenged some of the assumptions that have governed both Conservative and Labour uh, governments, the Treasury during their spells, in which uh, a, a focus on a higher exchange rate and a focus on financial services uh, has perhaps un unbalanced the economy to the detriment, certainly, of, of light manufacturing. Um, why has that been? And uh, uh, given that governments of both persuasions have pursued that policy, what, what was their thinking and why did they allow this to happen? Well, I think what happened was that um, inflation really became a really major problem in the 1970s and 1980s. And the response, particularly in the United States and the UK, but also through the Bundesbank, because there was another lot of reasons there to do with the German hyperinflation in 1923 for people being frightened of inflation, was that people threw everything at uh, dealing with the price rise problem. Uh, and that included very high interest rates, which dragged up the exchange rate and made the whole of the West actually uh, uncompetitive with the East, which adopted a very different policy. Uh, but one of the tenets of uh, monetarism and neoliberalism, which took over, was that you really couldn't do anything about the exchange rate. It was all determined by market forces, uh, that it didn't really make a lot of difference what it was, uh, that uh, if you did have a, high, a lower exchange rate, this wouldn't make you more competitive because you just have more inflation. And the result of all this was that having any sort of policy about what to do with the exchange rate just dropped off the picture. And uh, it was just assumed you couldn't do anything about it, stopping any sort of a policy tool at all. And that's really the mindset which I think the kind of economic and uh, academic establishment in this country, washed over into politics, still has. Uh, but the result of all this was to cause the country really dramatically to deindustrialize. I mean, we went down from nearly a third of GDP coming from manufacturing to less than 10% between 1970 and the 2010s. Uh, but because most uh, increases in productivity come from manufacturing and not from services. The result of all this was that growth just went down and down and down. And if you look right across the West, in the first uh, 25 years after World War II, the average growth rate was about 4%. The next quarter of a century was about 3%. For the first couple of decades of the 21st century, it's been 2%, and now it's dropped to 1%. And that's what's happened. And all the increase in productivity deriving from manufacturing have been uh, accommodated in the East rather than the West. And this has completely unbalanced the world's economy and, 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 and politics, in my view. Well, as you say, I mean, in the 1970s, manufacturing was about a third 
of uh, the UK's GDP. Now, now it's less than 10%. Isn't there an argument for saying that uh, a more competitive exchange rate uh, might have been a fantastic idea in the 1970s and early 1980s if we were to keep a large manufacturing base. But the reality is that that ship has sailed. And if we uh, have a, uh, if we guide our uh, monetary and economic policies towards a, a lower currency to help our manufacturing, we're essentially uh, focusing on less than 10% of the economy. Shouldn't we be focusing on, on the needs of the other 90% which for which a, a higher currency might might have uh, might have greater benefit. Well, I think the answer to that is that services a are not particularly price sensitive. Uh, I mean, if they were, they would have been uh, curtailed much more than actually has happened over the last few years. It's manufacturing which is much more price sensitive. Uh, but uh, the and services comprise about eighty percent of GDP, but they only produce about half our export income. Whereas manufacturing with less than 10% of our GDP produces the same amount. So the problem we've got is that if we've got a big balance of payments deficit, which is dragging the economy down all the time, you're never going to be able to fill that gap with services. You need manufacturing to do it. Now, is it possible to get manufacturing back in this country? I mean, that's a very big question because actually there's no history of any major uh, economy ever deindustrializing, then reindustrializing again. And this is why the book I've written has a lot of, of pages devoted to what can you do to get manufacturing back on its feet again. And essentially what I'm saying is that it's got to be profitable to do it. You've got to have the cost base, the cost that we charge out to the rest of the world in this country low enough to make it sensible and profitable to put new installations down in this country rather than somewhere else. And I think if you did do that, the... Uh, response to the British economy, as it's been everywhere else in the world, would be fairly rapid and fairly substantial. Uh, but you're never going to do that with an exchange rate as high as we've got at the moment. Well, in your book, The, the Elephant in the Room, you suggest that uh, reducing sterling's value by about 20% would increase GDP growth by about 2% a year. Yeah. Can, can you explain uh, for the layman uh, what, what you base that on? Uh, calculation on? Yes, and there, are, there are two ways of doing this calculation, both of which come up with roughly the same results. One is to say, looking at the historical figures and all the data there is, how responsive would the British economy be uh, in terms of more exports to rebalance the economy if you had a lower exchange rate? But the other more direct way of doing it is to say, what would you need to do uh, to increase investments and what sort of return would you get in those investments to get you to 2%? And I think the answer to that question is that you, you would need to shift about 4% of our GDP out of consumption and into the most productive forms of investment. And the most productive forms of investment tend to be clustered around mechanization and technology and the use of power. But if you look at the international statistics, the returns on that sort of investment are extremely high, at least 50% per annum. I mean, really much higher. If you look at the social rate of return rather than the private rate of return, so you take into account higher wages and salaries, you're taking into account better products, probably cheaper products too, a bigger tax base, more profitability. You've got this return, which is 50% or more, and 4% times 50%, is 2%, and that's what you're looking for. So essentially, the trick 
is to get the investment rate up, the key sorts of investment with the high returns, uh, to deliver this increase in GDP per annum on a sustainable basis. And, you know, if you look around the world, that's actually what most industrialized countries have done. What I think we need to do is to take a leaf out of their book and do it again ourselves. And what would happen if we managed to get the currency down by 20% or so? I mean, you would call that a competitive currency. Some of our competitors might uh, call it a, a, an unfair devaluation. What is the, the risk that they might take uh, measures to counteract us? Well, first of all, um, I think the real villains of the piece in terms of uh, balance of payments are not countries like the UK and the United States with huge balance of payments deficits. It's countries like Germany, Taiwan, uh, China, uh, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, which have got huge balance of payments. Switzerland, the worst case of the lot, huge balance of payments deficits, which have to be matched by deficits somewhere else. Now, the policy I advocate does not involve having the UK having a, a balance of payments surplus. I don't think that's necessary or desirable, but I think a small balance of payments deficit is where we need to be. But, but this in no way is a beggar my neighbor policy. What we're doing is providing the rest of the world with cheaper and better products and also having an economy which is growing more rapidly than it otherwise would, so we're bigger importers. Uh, I mean, the argument that we're actually beggaring the, the rest of the world just doesn't stand, stand up. But if you again, look at actually what's happened. Look what happened when we went down from $2 to the pound in 2007 to 2009, when we were one uh, 1.5. You know, we went down by 25%, and this was clearly driven by some market circumstances which made this justified. There was no uh, increase in inflation, nor was there any retaliation. And I don't see really why, provided what we're doing is explained, we're not there to beggar the rest of the world, we're there to just get a reasonable break for ourselves, but to be a better customer and a better supplier for everybody else. You know, I think this, we've got an arguable case, but if we could drive through, that's what we need to do. What would be the policies that Rishi Sunak should pursue in order to drive sterling's value, Dan? Well, first of all, if you have a balance of payments deficit, which we've got, which has been running recently at about £100 billion a year, uh, this... This is what you, if you have a deficit like that, this has to be reflected in the, in the capital account. And one of the reasons why we've had such a fine high exchange rate has to be to do with high interest rates. It's because as a matter of policy, we've liberalized asset purchases in this country on a scale which nobody else has replicated. And we've sold vast swathes of our economy, property, bonds, businesses to the rest of the world. And that's jacked up the exchange rate. Now, we don't need to do that. We could, we could, without withdrawing from the world and putting up drawbridges everywhere, we could have a tax business system that uh, changed, that discouraged this sort of investment. You could have restrictions of various sorts. I mean, we've got no public interest tests, for example, when businesses have taken over in this country, which is not true of nearly everywhere else. So there are ways of doing that. You need to get the Bank of England on side to bring the currency down by selling dollars, so, sorry, selling pounds and buying dollars uh, rather than what we do, it does at the moment, which is tend to keep the pound up, of course, of concerns with inflation and various other things. There's quite a lot you could do there. But above all, what I think you need to do is to explain to the rest of the world what the policy you're doing is all about. 
that, that what we're aiming to do is to have an exchange rate, which is not going to give us an unfair advantage, but is going to stop us being very disadvantaged by having an overvalued rate, uh, and that, that it's going to be maintained to make sure that we get a reasonable amount of investment. And again, at the end of the day, you know, what I'm not saying is we should go back to having the sort of 30% of GDP coming from manufacturing, which takes place in China. I, I mean, I think if we could get it back to about 15%, Bear in mind, we've got a very substantial surplus on exports. You could rebalance the economy uh, in terms of our balance of payments, on t- in terms of where uh, the uh, loca- industry is being located and the inputs of the country, so you get a better geographical balance. You know, I think you could get most of the really big imbalances of the economy back in, on track if you could get the proportion of our GDP involved in manufacturing up to around about 15%. doesn't need to be higher than that, I don't think, but it can't be less than 10% to enable us really to get anywhere in the world other than just maundering along the way we just described earlier on. Well, in terms of encouraging investment, um, interest rates are already at the historically low 0.1%. Talk of negative rates coming in. where, where is the movement to, to go there? I mean, surely monetary policy, the Bank of England, it's doing everything it really can as it is. I, I'm not sure where, where the kind of you're, you're going to find the extra there. Well, I think there's, there's an illusion that very low interest rates necessarily increase investment. What increases investment is the prospect of, in, of projects being profitable. And there, interest rates on, or the interest charged on most projects of the sort of we've been talking about uh, technology and, and mechanization and so on, they're a tiny proportion of the total. What is a much larger total is wages, salaries, all the overhead costs involved in running a manufacturing operation, interest, charges, taxation. It, it, the average costs, if you're involved in manufacturing, uh, that are in domestic terms, is about 70% of the total. If you look at the 100% of total costs, about 30% is involved in machinery and raw materials and components, and about 70% are all these overhead costs, including wages and salaries and everything else, that are incurred in the domestic currency. But of those, interest charges are probably 5% or something, uh, and 95% is everything else. And it's everything else that needs to be brought down, but that's an exchange rate issue. It's not an interest rate issue. The only way of getting that cost down, the, the, the amount that you're charging the rest of the world, is to get the exchange rate down. And that, that's a sort of central core argument in the book. Do you see in the Treasury or in the Bank of England much evidence that these ideas are being digested and taken seriously? Or is the, the old orthodoxy still very much in place despite everything that's happened uh, in recent months with, with COVID and all the other disruptions that we face? Well, I think the answer is that there are some people who take the same sort of view that I do, uh, but the vast weight of um, thought in this country is, 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 is just not in the same place at all. And very interestingly, you know, of the people I talk to and the people who are engaged with these sort of arguments, what I find is not that they come back with counter-arguments which are very strong to upset them. Their reaction is just to ignore the arguments altogether, not to engage. And I think there is just a kind of blind spot that this country's got into. I think it's been a legacy of the, uh, the monetarist and neoliberal 
approach that I was talking about earlier on with uh, all the difficulties that were in the 1970s. And just a feeling that, you know, there's nothing you can do on the exchange rate front to make the situation any better. And I think if you examine what the history of this country and the history of other countries too, and what, what's happened over a long period of time, you, you realize that actually this is wrong. That what is, is the case is that whether countries are competitive or not, whether they're orientated towards in manufacturing and investment and exports, as opposed to imports and debt and stagnation, is crucially important. Well, uh, John Mills, author of The Elephant in the Room, why UK living standards may be lower in 2030 than they were in 2019 or 2007, and what we can do to stop this happening. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for explaining some of the ideas you'd like to see driving the British economic recovery. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.